0: You never really wanna give up on your end goals, but you gotta be very, very flexible about your means towards that end and never confuse what your means are with your ends.
1: Welcome to View From The Top, the podcast. That was Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago. Emanuel came to campus as part of View From The Top, a speaker series where MBA students sit down to interview top leaders from around the world. In this episode, Emmanuel reflects on his role in the Chicago t- Teachers Strike of 2012, shares tips on making deals, and warns students about the downsides of what he calls moral victories. You're listening to View From the Top, the podcast.
2: Well, Mayor Emanuel, it's a great honor to be here with you today. Um, I know you've been traveling the country promoting Chicago as a Center for Entrepreneurship. And many of the 400-plus GSB students here are interested in being entrepreneurs. So why should they go to Chicago rather than Silicon Valley? (laughs)
0: Well,
2: that's a... First of all, uh, since
0: we're out here, uh, Chicago was just... uh, There was a comparison of 10 of the biggest cities in the United States. It has the lowest cost of living of any of the major 10 cities. (laughs) You can actually get a... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You can actually get an apartment with a view and still afford a meal. (laughs) I'm saying that out here, uh, Wes. Uh, The second thing is, uh, uh, I'll say this. This is a serious thing. Time Out magazine did a thing of worldwide cities and was rated as the best number one city to live in in the world. And my kids tease me often because I'm a big booster of Chicago, but i got to be honest, I was a little shocked at that uh, evaluation (laughs) myself. Uh, But on the entrepreneurship, uh, not this... Name another business school, so I apologize. Um, I'll have to go into a witness protection plan now. Uh, Harvard Business did a case study of Chicago's entrepreneurial culture and uh, high tech. It's going to come out in a couple months. And it talks about what the, unlike w- what happened up uh, here in San Francisco and in the Valley, we've done it from a more diversified basis. And what's created now in the city of Chicago and uh, the Harvard Business Study study is a classic study of what public sector, private sector, has happened. And, I, and looking at, across the students, I would also say there was a study came out, Chicago was the number one city for female entrepreneurs. Um, and we put a lot of emphasis in that, in that space. And uh, I think it's Pitch Magazine rated Chicago as the number one city for return on VC money. So now those are all my facts and I'm done now. <laughs> uh, and the other thing is, it's raining here and it's about 50 degrees in Chicago. <laughs> Uh, and we actually can use our lakefront, uh, 8 to, you know, but there's a great quality of life to it. And I also think, I always refer to Chicago as the most American of American cities. You know, we have 140 languages spoken in our public schools. And I was at a school the other day where we were doing an addition, and 26 different languages came up to say welcome to the city where we're making a criti- critical capital investment. And that's America, that's the city of Chicago, and I think that's the strength is our diversity. And whether it's B2B, B2C, you can create a company, you can start a company, and you have a very supportive community. We have a community culture that's true of our theater, that's true of our business community, and it's true of our entrepreneurial uh, community, which is why uh, you see people succeed even when they fail, which is your greatest learning experience, have the support to continue to go on and push on, which is true both in theater, entrepreneurship, and obviously in politics as well.
2: You mentioned education. It's a passion of yours. Yeah. What, have you, what are you doing in Chicago to, uh, to help those who want to be educated? Do be, well, uh, I hope it doesn't turn on that last point, who want to <laughs> be educated.
0: Uh, well, we did a number of things, uh, and I want to be honest. I ran for mayor. One, it's, uh, it's my home. Uh, it's a city that 100 years ago this year my grandfather came to, 13 years old, by himself, leaving the pogroms of Eastern Europe and his grandson's the mayor of that city. It's only in America, and I will tell you, only in Chicago. And, uh, you know, my grandfather was a dreamer. 13 years old, by, by himself, a word of English, to meet a third cousin he never knew. And through meat cutting, steel working, truck driving, his grandsons, uh, one is a Hollywood, I don't know what the you would describe Ari as, uh, the other one <laughs> uh, is a doctor, and his uh, other grandson, is an elected, you know, in public service. That's in a great American story, and that's the strength of this country. And he, and he just basically followed his dreams and allowed us. So I believe, and I ran for mayor, not just because I wanted to pay tribute to my grandfather, but I believe firmly in what the city has to offer. So we've done a couple of things. One, the first thing, I made kindergarten, full day kindergarten, universal for every child. It used to be half the kids had seven hours a day, half that four. And trust me, the kids were getting four, should have gotten seven, the kids were getting seven, could have afforded to get four. It was, I suppose I can say it here, you can kick me out, I'm only 51 minutes. It was asked backwards, to be blunt. Uh, So we made universal kindergarten. We added an hour and 15 minutes to every day and two weeks to every year. So every child now gets two and a half more years of school education than they did before. The largest increase ever in the history of the United States. Now, we also did a couple other things one, I think the debate about education is too focused on teachers and not enough about parents and principals. No teacher can afford to do it all by themselves. A school principal runs that building. So we've reinforced them to help them accountable for results, finding teachers and re, have a recruitment system on that. We've reconverted our high schools to be college preparatory. End result, on the NAEP test last year, our eighth graders led the United States in math gains. Our fourth graders uh, were third in reading gains of urban systems. There were three school districts in the United States whose fourth and eighth graders math and reading went up, Miami, Washington, D.C., and the city of Chicago. When I became mayor, our graduation was 57%. Our freshman on track right now is 87%. We match the United States, kids going on to a four-year institution, and kids going on to a community college, and trust me, the demographics of the city of Chicago is not the same as the United States. And we're the first city in the United States that, if you get a B average in high school, community college is free. Um, and it's the only scholarship publicly funded where undocumented kids can go to uh, college. Only one in the United States. Uh, and which we're also excited about is, if you get a you get a B average in high school, community college is free. And it's the second largest system in the United States that the World Bank called the best college to career program in the United States. If you keep the B average in community college, all the schools in the city of Chicago, 16 of them, you've got to get the right ACT. But if you keep the B average, they give you a 40% discount on tuition on average. It's the only place in America you can go to college for basically a year and a half of cost. And it's just, that is the single greatest pressure point on parents. Now, I will say this as I've said to my kids and I'll say here, I don't know all of you obviously, just walked on. We got two things in common, the love of our parents and a good education. I can't do anything about number one, but I can do something in public policy about number two. And I have to guarantee parents a, a quality education for their children, they pick what's right. So we've put principals first, school principals, reinvented high school for what's relevant to college, community college or career made pre-K, uh, well, kindergarten, universal, full-day, pre-K, where at 60% of our kids now get a full-day pre-K. And we've been willing to take on failure, whether that's consolidation of schools, turning around schools. I do, and I also don't see myself as a reformer. I think that's nuts. Nobody sits around the kitchen table going, hey, let's go to reform. Trust me, you sit around and go, either quality, or mediocrity, and I want quality for my kids. And the goal should not be reform, the goal should be quality. And then what fits into quality versus mediocrity? So we now have the largest international baccalaureate system in the United States. We have every branch of the armed services, runs a high school in the city of Chicago, and the largest junior ROTC in the United States. And I say that here just so you all know, Every kid competing together, there's eight applicants for every high school seat that's run by a military. And 80% of those kids graduate, and 90% go on to college. Un- and it's all kids of color. Unbelievable uh, system. And we also have seven of the ten best high schools in the state are in the city of Chicago. Uh, and so that's our, that's our story,
2: and we're sticking to it. With change comes challenge, especially as a political leader. You're balancing <laughs> a lot of competing interests so, as the mayor of a large city, how do you think about negotiating through that process to get to the place where you want to actually affect outcomes?
0: Well, you know, you have to weigh equities, okay? There's never. Um, look, life is a series of trade offs, okay? That's not different in public policy. But you have to weigh, as I do when I go through budgets or exercise, I always say to my staff pain to pleasure. uh, What I mean by that, I can see by the stunned faces, that was really insightful by the mayor. Uh, (laughs) uh, How much pain am I ready to give to how much gains? And I'll give you this one story. Uh, You know, it was about the third day we were having a teacher strike. It was over the longer school day and the longer school day. And I made a pledge when I ran, we were going to do it. Chicago, when I was mayor, or before I became mayor, had the shortest school day in the United States of America. If 85% of your kids are in poverty, would you design as a ticket out of poverty a five-hour day, five and a half-hour day? That's what we had. We had kids out of high school going on the streets of Chicago at 2:20. Really? And we couldn't afford recess because we couldn't give up the academic time, which everybody knows kids need recess. Actually, it's actually conducive to academics. That exercise. So I know it was about the second or third day. Kids, you know. Teachers are outside my house screaming at me, screaming at my kids or whatever. And I'm about to walk out and Amy looks at me and goes, you know, I've seen you through an impeachment. I've seen you through healthcare. I've seen you through NAFTA, I've seen you through the assault weapon ban. She goes, I've never seen you calmer, like in one of these. I said, I've never felt more right about what I was doing. And I walked out to, you know, at the (laughs) front door. Uh, I just would like the record to show I kept it clean here. Uh, but you have to weigh equities constantly and you have to look at what is a core versus what's not. And I'll give you one thing if, I hope this is helpful from a negotiation. So I was, Bruce Reed and I were responsible in the balanced budget agreement in 97 for getting kids health care. It was kids who were too, parents worked but couldn't afford, Medicaid, they were too, had a too high income, yet the private sector, they didn't have health care. And so President Clinton had negotiated, or had proposed pediatric care, and eye and dental, but part of Medicaid expansion. Gingrich responded, pediatric care, no eye and dental, and outside of Medicaid. Well, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, now in retrospect, looks straightforward. So we said, okay, here's the deal. We'll do pediatric care, plus eye and dental, which is what, President Clinton's health care proposal, but we'll do your idea outside of Medicaid, which was a cigarette tax, but separate. It was called care, separate from Medicaid. They got their win because they hate entitlements. They didn't want to see Medicaid expanded. And President Clinton got his win, which was expansion of kid care, or creation of care, but with eye and dental as part of his care. And they, so everybody got something that was core to their effort. And we could have sat there beating the crap out of each other but at the end of the day, it was finding out a place which was a good enough win for them and a good enough win for the president to move forward. And Bruce Reed and I and Gene Sperling were the key. And you never really want to give up on your end goals, but you've got to be very, very flexible about your means towards that end and never confuse what your means are with your ends. And sometimes it's very hard in the midst of a battle or if you're a middle child and you want to win every point, uh, uh, a, a moment of self-reflection, uh, that don't, remember what your goal is. And then be f- strong about that, but flexible on the road uh, of what, which road you would take to get to that goal line. So um, that's, I don't know, that's, that's the kind of way I, you try to think about it. Or as I used to say about Washington, they're firm in their opinions. It's principles they're flexible on.
2: Uh, <laughs> I left the town, so I can say that. Uh, you mentioned your brothers. Um, it seemed like the Emmanuels were destined for greatness, whatever they did. But what chose you? What, I would not uh, say that. <laughs> Fair enough. I think we were closer um,
0: to death. Uh, <laughs> uh,
2: so, why did you choose politics? And that's where I want to go. Maybe it's like death, but what, uh, what drove no, you towards that direction?
0: I, I love po- First of all, I don't think of it as politics, I think of it as public service. Uh, I think, you know, um, so what, let me back up. For first, it was not destined. Uh, you know, I had a, I played soccer. I wanted to improve my soccer game, so I took up ballet. And I actually had a scholarship to the Joffrey Ballet. And, uh, uh, much to a Jewish mother's chagrin, I didn't take it. Uh, I convinced her, I went to Sarah Lawrence, and I convinced her I'd be a dancer. And the moment my parents drove up through the ballet shoes, the ones and all... Uh, But then at college, I started uh, studying child psychology um, and early childhood education, which sometimes I think prepared me to deal with politicians. Uh, (laughs) uh, And one summer I volunteered uh, for an interest group and I realized this is what I love. And my parents were very big about following your passion. And uh, my mother, but then everybody I talk to now that I know from high school says, "Oh, we always knew you were gonna go into public service. I had no idea. Uh, now, at our dinner table, which some people refer to as a cage match at our house, uh, you know, my mother was very active in the civil rights movement early on, and she ran a thing in Chicago called Congress on Racial Equality. And she was basically gone and arrested during the week, etc., and not around. My father, who was an immigrant, quit the AMA in 1962 over national health care with barely like five words of English. Not exactly a way to build a practice. Uh, and led the campaign in Chicago to eliminate lead from uh, household paint, And so dinner conversation, and we also grew up in a non-nuclear family. My grandparents lived with us. My grandfather, my father's mother, my grandmother, Safta, she lived with us for eight years. My pa- grandparents eight years. And dinner discussions was always about per- current events. And I career-wise, I stumbled into it. I will also tell you, my, when I got out and I was doing community service and, uh, coll- when I got out of college to do, move back to Chicago, I wanted to work in a White House for a president I believed in. And I got there with Clinton, and I, was, I thought I was all over with my life at 38. Um, and, um, and when I was dating, I told Amy, oh, I will never run for office. I would never do that to a family. Uh, <laughs> And then the seat opened up, and I decided, uh, but I always wanted to work in a White House, work for president, and I believed firmly uh, in what I think my family voted. Uh, Let me give you one other uh, uh, story, which I think is true for all of the boys. So in our family room, on the wall, was in the middle was a picture of my my grandmother on my mother's side's purse, And the passports for my grandmother and my two great-aunts to come to America. And on either side of that picture, which was framed, of that purse and and the passports, were the pictures of family members who never made it to America and in Europe uh, died. And there's nothing subtle in a Jewish home. And it was my parents' reminder that every one of us were fortunate. We're in the greatest country in the world. And you are to do something to give back to this great country. And each of us in one way or another through either healthcare, uh, entertainment or public service, has try to give a part of their lives uh, to giving back. Because this is the greatest country in the world. It is still a beacon of hope. I don't care what happens. And it's still a place where people whether they come from the Pacific, the Atlantic or the Rio. They come to give their kids a better tomorrow than the one they left. And it's still that and always will be if we stay
2: true to who we are. You served uh, two presidents in the White House, President Clinton and President Obama. (laughs) Um, What was the worst day in the Clinton presidency for you, and what did you learn from that that helped you in your future career? That's...
0: um... (laughs) Why don't you guys get your knapsacks out, man? We're going to stay here. for. There's a, what's my worst day? Like a, or a slew of them. Oh, worst let's see, month. Let's just roll them all out. Uh, uh, well, there's a personal, and then there's a, uh, so I'll give you, um, oh, my God.
2: This, this should be good.
0: No, it's not. It's not. Uh, so I told you, I, you know, my, life ho- my lifelong dream, right? I'm going to go to, I want to work in a White House for somebody I believe in. So Amy and Amy was still in Chicago, and we're dating. She decides she will move to Washington and join me on this once in a lifetime. I'm going to work for a person in the White House. Six months in the White House. Now, my recommendation in the White House, don't really say what you think to the First Lady. Not a good idea. Uh, and it was around the travel office. And I had tried to stop us from doing the tra- travel office. We'll just leave it there. Uh, So we buy a place together, and I don't have any money. Uh, But anyway, she arrives the day that I was being told I was being fired. Uh, Not really a good thing. So she doesn't have a job, I'm out of a job, and we have a mortgage that we can't afford. Uh, That was kind of a low moment. Uh, uh, That's a personal low moment. And I do not know, except for my parents, my father, Where I found, all of a sudden, I said to the chief of staff, well, I'm not leaving until the president tells me I'm gone. I don't know where I thought I would... What chutzpah? I mean, they forgot. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not leaving until the president tells me I'm fired. And he says, what do you mean? I said, I'm not going. And I basically knew that the president Clinton wouldn't fire me. And I don't know where I found... I'll just say chutzpah. We'll leave it at that. (laughs) Uh, And so that was a very low point. Um, and I'll tell you another low one. So, um, so that was one low. End of the day, I didn't leave, and they gave me as my concession, so I didn't get fired, obviously. And I was given NAFTA to save, and that's when we had, like, three votes. Uh, and so, like, here, give it to Mikey, you know? Like, here, right? <laughs> and we ended up, uh, I said, we build dailies. Uh, and I, have, so I just talked to, I'll tell you a funny story about that, too. So I'll come back. That was a low point, and here was another uh, Bruce Reed and I were responsible for welfare reform, to get it done. And if you go back then, uh, that was uh, a big thing about work. It was a big thing for a Democrat to end uh, entitlement. And uh, a lot. And it was very contentious. And it's actually, to be honest, it was exactly what you want in a public policy debate. I remember when uh, President Clinton walked into the cabinet room. We had tw- an hour to decide to sign or not sign. He had vetoed two prior bills. The White House was split. Etc. And you would actually, in your mind's eye, would want that four-hour debate about something really intense that you were about to embark on something you never, the unknown. What was it worse than the known, even though the known was a failure, and not succeeding in trapping people in dependency, uh, etc. But in this whole process and debate. So, and he's a good friend. So let me just say this. There was, you know, Senator Moynihan then, the late senator, was saying that kids are going to be on crates sleeping out in the middle of the night. And it was a really contentious debate as a country about whether for the first time ever we ended a guaranteed entitlement to some minimum. And um, on the high holidays, this is also the rabbi that married us, uh, on the high holidays, my rabbi attacked me in his sermon for what I was doing in my government job. And um, uh, I'm still a Jewish, uh, uh, I still go to synagogue now, but it was actually, and it, it was an v- intense pressure because there was a lot of pressure in the White House, a lot of people against the bill, though, and there was a few of us for the bill, and willing to take the risk of the unknown versus the failure of the known, and thought we had done a good job in negotiating true to the president's policies. But when the, my rabbi, from the pulpit, and I'm, we take, I take my Judaism seriously, uh, but, uh, attacked those he t- to those of us who were advising the president on welfare reform. There was not a lot of us in the synagogue. It was, you know, and we weren't in the cheap seats, so you know that was a low point. I will be honest about where I, I felt like I was doing what, you know, I have a rule about politics, if I can. Uh, because it runs against, I think, the grains of what people want to think, which is, I think you have to be idealistic enough to know why you're doing what you're doing and then ruthless enough to get it done. Uh, sometimes my uh, family thinks I'm, I've got the ruthless thing down really tight, uh, working on that, no, that's a, uh, but I think, you know, a lot of people like to think back and, oh, this idealistic, etc. You know, I'm a lover of reading history. Lincoln was idealistic enough, but he was also ruthless. Okay, he didn't start the, you know, I teach eighth grade civics class. He didn't start the war to end slavery. Now, you can see and read his early speeches where he was thinking, but he knew if he got there too soon, he'd be, you know, way ahead of where the country was and he couldn't move it. Uh, And so he knew in his mind's eye where he was going, but you've got to be idealistic enough to want to put up with this all the time and then ruthless enough to get it done. And it's not an either one. And so uh, the low point in the Clinton was being able to be true to what I thought was right, help a president see through what they wanted, and then uh, be able to take your rabbi's personal criticism you in front of 1,600 other fellow worshipers.
2: When you took over as... That was it for also. Shabbat services. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm never stepping foot in that synagogue, again. <laughs> okay,
2: go uh, When you took over as chief of staff in the White House, yeah. uh, very early on, the president wanted to push for health care reform, and you were one of the early uh, opponents within the White House and then changed. But how do you think about being... I wouldn't say opponents, but... Well, okay. maybe recommended against it. How do you think about being a, a principal to a leader and having a robust debate and then going out and selling his policies when you may not agree with everything?
0: Well, that's... Uh, well, first of all... Uh, You owe the president the honesty, and the good news is I work for two people that would never want to yes people around, and boy did I excel at that part. (laughs) Uh, But no, I. So here's the thing: as chief of staff, um, your job is to help a president. Look, guys, nothing is good and bad, easy and hard. Okay, it's all very complicated, and it's not clear. And Mike, my advice to him, and I want to be clear about what I said, Uh, I didn't say don't do health care. The history of health care, okay, so I'll I'll say what I said to the president. Okay, 100 years presidents have wanted to do universal health care. They failed. Every president has tried, has universalized a segment of the population, not the population. Medicare, seniors. Medicaid, poor. Veterans, kid care. Nobody has succeeded at universal health care. My advice was, Know what has come before so you understand this. And as you go forward in the top drawer of that oak desk, what's plan B? Because we're more likely to get to plan B than to plan A. And if you get to plan A, the consequences, given you're going to take on one-sixth of the economy, is going to be unbelievable both to you trying to do something else and to everybody else. You know, one of the things I always say, I'm proud to have worked for the president, but if it wasn't for the 06 and 08 house gains, he would have gotten his agenda done. It's just not possible. And I spent a lot of time recruiting a lot of people and convincing them this was worth doing. Okay, so that's A. B. I had to evaluate for him, which is what he wanted. What are the trade-offs between the end, the means, and what is the pain to pleasure? And if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be doing my job as chief of staff. And once he made his decision, my role as giving advice and counsel was over and it was to go get the votes. Now some people argued, you know, like, I, I said to him, I said, uh, another anecdote or another story. I said, oh, I'll make this deal, but I said, we're not having the House vote on Zach's bar mitzvah. Big, big deal, because that's exactly what happened. So Zach's done with the half Torah section. I'm running out of the synagogue, going back, and we're getting Bart Stupak and the 13 Catholic Republicans I'm um, uh, on uh, birth control and legislation. We did a legal document. And Bart used to work out with me, etc. And so my only point to him was, understand what it's going to take politically to get this done, and if you get it done, what are the consequences of getting it done? And there's good things policy-wise, and there's challenges politically. And uh, after health care, there was Dodd-Frank, but I'll give you the rest of the presidency was executive orders. You didn't replenish the political bank. You drained it. And if you are a Democratic president with a great vision of what government can do and what you want to do, understood, and that was my job, was to say what I believe, and I believe that. And I'm happy he did it. I think there's been great things that's got, gotten done. But if I had not done that... You know, then all this notion, oh, go into the White House, go into that Oval Office and tell them the truth. Okay, I did. That's what I did, and I believe still to today you have to evaluate equities, and it's not A to B. There's a lot of complications to it. And you give the president advice, and he makes or she makes the decision, and then your job as a staff person is to execute it. And that's exactly what I did.
2: So in 2011, you went from being that executive agent of the president to actually being the principal yourself. And what kind of leadership changes did you have to make, or what kind of things as a leader did you have to shift about your engagement with your staff to actually be the person in charge?
0: Thank God you're not interviewing the staff. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, there's a couple things. Well, first of all, there's a, you know I think there are three qualities a chief executive has to exude. This is true for president. It's true for uh, mayor, uh, true for governor. But I, I can't say it for the private se- private sector. But I can say in the public sector, you always have to communicate strength, confidence, and optimism. Nobody goes for the weaker, not sure, unse- insecure. You know, or you know, a dark person or whatever. So you, those are qualities. But in a chief executive, remember, unlike an elected official, who's a legislator. As a Congressman, you have to represent people 's views as a mayor or as a president, they give you you know that responsibility to take care of business, not to represent them not 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 to represent them, but to it 's a different role and a different function and i 'd run for office before been a chief of staff to run a white House uh, and mayor though is uh, it is a transition from being an agent for somebody else to being the principal for your city. Totally, it is a different voice and a different uh, role. But I've uh, been in office before, and so that, and one level, is not different. On the other hand, there are things I do when I was a congressman to chief of staff that I continue as mayor, which are weekly reports to keep tabs on what I need going uh, and making sure that people are executing on a certain mission. Like this Thursday, I'm giving a major address. It's a five year anniversary of the first address I gave on infrastructure. And laying out our plan from our runways to our rail to our roads. And what we're doing and stuff like that. Um, But also understanding what the the staff's job is versus what
2: I'm trying to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, thank you. Okay. Um, Last year- I had no idea what I was saying. Uh, (laughs) You're a politician, so you did a very good uh, good job. You have a a bad view of what public service is about. (laughs) Um, Last year, your approval ratings hit an all-time low, but they've Mm -hmm. since recovered. Mm -hmm. So as a leader who is at the whims of the public to some extent, how do you get through those difficult times and then recover, as you have?
0: Find a different rabbi. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, I think... uh, Look, um, there's a difference between where you... Also, it's not always consistent. So what I mean by how a president or how, if you are in the second term versus the first term, where you are, that will kind of weigh different. I always kind of remind myself or try to, which is the decisions we do today and I tell my staff, and my, more importantly, the cabinet what we're doing today for the next two, three years will determine what Chicago will be like for the next 20 to 30 years. And you've got to be willing to take certain political points, pressure today that's worthwhile. Down the road. And i um, meaning, you don't, so I've, certain things I learned out of Clinton and Obama, and I, I this is a bad example, but it's one to illustrate the point. Um, so we're embarking, but we did it five years ago. I've raised water rates 25%, 15%, 15%, 15%, and then indexed them so nobody has to go back and do this vote again on raising water rates. And we're replacing 900 miles of water pipe. Everything that's 100 years or older in the city will be replaced by 2019. Every 670 miles of sewer will be either relined, replaced, everything 100 years or older. We're replacing 167,000 catch basins and the two largest water filtration plants in the United States of America, built top to bottom. And I indexed it, and the reason is I didn't want to, once I got that vote, it passed 50 to 0. But I didn't want another mayor or in city council to have to go through the politics of raising rates again. So it's now indexed, once we're done at that 900, it will continue to fund. So the infrastructure continues to go forward, straightforward. I did not think somebody should go back and try to do once I did those politics. And there's certain things of what we're doing on the rail stuff, et cetera. Take care of the politics, get it out. Uh, does that make sense what I'm trying to say? And so in that sense, I'm trying to Make decisions that I think over the st- of t- over the time will stand the test of time for generations to come, and that, and I'll probably the biggest one. That was a bad example, but now I'm thinking about it. You know, I ran on the fact that Chicago had the shortest school day and the shortest school year, and I was going to do something about it. And I was not going to let our kids be dead last on time. And I knew that time in class mattered. And when it came to that strike, could I, have a stri- could I solve the strike or not have a strike if I threw the towel and said, wow, this is harder than I thought? Yeah. Do I think another mayor after me will go back and say, I'd like to go back to the shortest school day? No. I think they're going to say, I'm glad that hour and 15 minutes was added, and now I don't have to debate it anymore. And so you've got to be, as a person, comfortable with that sometimes you're going to uh, take it in the shorts, but it's worth your taking the politics. Now, here's the deal. I took a week strike in the city, which I hadn't. I'm not proud of it. But was it worth the hour and 15 minutes of every day for every child and two weeks every year? The fact that your eighth graders now lead the country in math gains, your fourth graders are third in reading gains in the United States, your graduation is triple the rate of the United States of America for every year for the last four years. Yeah, it's worth it. So for I'll take a weak strike, and our kids now are leading the country in educational gains. Totally worth it. Not a chance. Not, and I would do it again. I would like not to. <laughs> uh, but there are certain things that you have you have to, and then take you'll take the political hit, short term, cetera, If you think the long term gain for other people is worth that. Um, and that was the same thing to tell, in a different venue that. Uh, uh, that presidents, when they make tough calls and the chance uh, Obama on health care, uh, that's worth doing. And you think it's worth the game. And you're willing to take the political hit uh, and spend it. Now, it also... Nothing's stagnant, you know, in politics. It's a dynamic thing. And yes, we're in a better position. But, you know, you go through those periods of times, And hopefully you learn something out of them.
2: One of the tensions I think a lot of startups face is... 20th century regulatory environment, Um, the 20th 20th century regulatory environment. So Uber tried to come into Chicago. They had some challenges there. Austin has done some things to maybe exclude Airbnb, Uber, and Lyft. How do you think about integrating new technology and kind of cutting-edge things when it comes to actually also maintaining the regulations that keep your city safe or whatever? How do you blend those two things?
0: Well, let me, you know, we just went through this with Uber, who I also met with this morning. So we'll give you an example. The hotel, so when I became mayor, the hotel industry, we had uh, 39 million visitors. We now have 54 million visitors. And it's been an incredible growth, both in tourism, beyond business travel to tourists. And we're really marketing. And the hotel industry loves what's happening. And we've redone uh, McCormick Place, our convention business, blah, blah, blah. Um, That was an official business term, blah, blah, blah. Um, So that goes forward. So Airbnb comes, and I said to the hotel industry, who's very supportive, look, they're here. We're not keeping them out. The question is, what are the rules they're going to operate under? So we did something which I'm really proud of. W- beyond they paying a hotel tax, that's Airbnb, I put a 4% surtax for homelessness. And we now raise two and a half to $3 million now. So it just started. But I, beyond the 16% tax that it, all hotels pay and Airbnb pays, there's a 4% surtax just for homeless services. And we're gonna, we've discussed today something new, uh, which no other city's going to do, which I'm, we're going to try. And i got to work. I can't say it now because i got to work something out, but I'm confident I will. You'll be the first to know. <laughs> uh, uh, but you've got to be able to see what, you, uh, what are the fundamentals and then what's your goal out of it? Nobody in the negotiation, nobody ever signs on to a loss. Everything I always say to our team, before we go into anything, so that was like true when I, the, the hotel industry wanted to throttle. And I said, okay, you know, they get that, they want to throttle Airbnb. There are other people, you know, nobody signs on to a loss, nobody willingly. And so the question is, as I always say to my team, What's their wins? I always, before a negotiation, draw out on a piece of paper, their wins, my wins. Always. Now, can I give them what I think are their wins? Can they give me my wins? And then, how close are we to that kind of ideal paper at the beginning than when we get to the end? Usually, people like to walk home and make their sell. We did it recently with the teachers. There are things in there the teachers can claim to their members. They won. Fair and square. Not a problem. There's things we won. Fair and square. Otherwise, it's not a very good negotiations or a contract. If you try to make the other side lose, it's not usually a good way to get a deal done. And they won't sign on to it. And if they do sign on to it, it's because you crushed them. And trust me, they're going to come back and get you. What goes around comes around. So I always try to start when we negotiate something, sit at the table with my staff and roll up and say, okay, write out to me their wins and the ones we can afford to give them. Now write out my wins that they can afford to give me, and then let's try to keep that as our North Star in this deal. But my biggest problem for me is we kind of know it, so let's just get to it already. And usually, like, negotiations have their own theater performance before you get there. And I'm not
2: one for that. Uh, Patience is not one of my strong suits. <laughs> uh, Following the 2016 election, Democrats are in a tough spot. They're in a Minorist? minority across the federal government. <laughs> really? Uh, in 2018, they'll have to defend Hello? 25 of the 33 Senate races. Yeah. Um, you've lost over 1,000 state legislative seats since 2009. <laughs> but in 2006, you... Uh, as the GCCC chairman are you, are you, won the House, what did the have to do to are, regain their Are you my residence? rabbi? <laughs> I could uh, be if you want. Ah, really.
0: Well, here, look. I, prob- I, I probably shouldn't be too honest. Uh, okay. uh, so look, um, there's a couple things. Uh, no, this has not been 2016 on the House and State House. Uh, 2016 now, Democrats are at the lowest level since 1928 in the, sta- in the House of Representatives and the lowest level since 1925 in the state houses. Not really good, okay? I know you didn't pay me the big bucks to come here and tell you that, but uh, <laughs> I thought I'd... It, it is hard to imagine it getting lower. So there's a lot of different policies. One, you've got to go out and create a farm team. You know, in 06 and 08... When I, and, you know, everybody goes, oh, that's when we took back the House. You know, I got a lot of crap for recruiting Iraq and war vets, football players, sheriffs, business people. I said, well, they're running in Republican districts. I wanted to take cultural issues off the table and wanted to present economic issues. You know, we as Democrats like to walk around ideally, you know, no, you got to be ruthless enough. We recruited people who match the district. If you're running in a Republican district... You got to get at somebody who can win in a Republican district. Winning is everything. You don't win, you can't make the public policy. I say that because it is hard for people in our party to accept that principle. Sometimes you just got to win, OK? <laughs> and our, our party likes to be right even if they lose. I don't go to moral victory speeches. I can't stand them. I've never lost an election. It's about winning, because if you win, you then have the power to go do what you need to get done. If you lose, you can write this book about what happened. Great. That's really exciting. (laughs) And my view is, right now, number one, get on top of redistricting. I want it all handled by courts and commissions. Get the state legislatures out of that because we haven't done it the other way, and they have. Got to change that. Second, go get a farm team. Third, uh, uh, in this effort, stop arguing about doing, Democrats love doing a firing squad in the circle. Stop it, okay? Don't attack, oh, they're too moderate. Forget about it. This guy and these people are about to do something on the tax code, the regulatory environment, and things that are more threatening than what a fellow Democrat may dis- slightly disagree with you on. Stop it. We're not strong enough to do that. And then you've got to pick which ones you're going to fight about. Not every pitch has to be swung at. I only use that because of the Chicago Cubs. I don't know anything <laughs> about baseball, but I know that's <laughs> what they say, okay? But you don't, you, we don't have the power to swing at everything. So you have to pick what is essential. Now, what we do know, I would say also, time is not the incumbent party's uh, friend, time is the opposition's friend. Slow. Go slow. They want to rush, we want to go slow. Real slow. B, wedge. Wherever there's a disagreement among Republicans, I'm for one of those disagre- disagreements. <laughs> I'm all for it. <laughs> okay? Fair enough. Presidents want Russia, I'm with John McCain, Lindsey Graham. I'm for NATO. (laughs) Why? Wedge. Wedges, schisms have to be wedges. Wedges has to be divides and divisions. And third, let me be real clear. We got to lower the president. Why? Because they are strong enough to get them than us. We're not strong enough. And that's my kind of take on this. And that is how you build now. You also got to know you can't beat something with nothing. That was Bill Clinton's always lesson to me. You have to have an alternative. So when I was in uh, Congress and head of the DCCC, I wrote a book with Bruce Reed uh, uh, about a set of policy ideas for the Democratic Party. You have to give people your vision. Okay? So those are kind of uh, the rules of what I would say to take a party. And I would also be honest. It took us a long time to get this low. It ain't going to happen in 2018. Take a chill pill, man. You've got to be in this for the long haul. And if you think it's going to be a quick turnaround you know, like that, it's not. You have to be part of this for the long haul because our ideals, our ideas, like theirs, they didn't get to this point just overnight. It's not going to take like this. You're going to have a success here. You're going to have a success here. And then you'll build a critical mass. And But it's worth fighting for. And I think this country is worth fighting for.
2: I have one last question before we're going to the Q&A with the audience. I have um, two last answers. <laughs> Fantastic. Nah. Okay. Uh, who's the Republican you most respected in Washington when you were there? Who's, why, I,
0: <laughs> who's the Republican I most respected? You know, uh, I would... Uh, uh, so here's the thing. In 08, I handled the... Uh, the negotiations around the debate between Obama, uh, the structure, Lindsey Graham did for the other side. And uh, Lindsey and I um, ended up uh, developing a friendship beyond, that goes way, you know, we used to have dinner and stuff like that. Not that that's a sign. We used to have dinner, right? But it was, you know, I I even picked up the tab. No. uh, (laughs) uh, But anyway, so... uh, and I say that because he and I, in the end of the day, with uh, Carl Levin, negotiated an agreement to handle uh, the trials for terrorists and a structure in which he would put Republican votes to close Guantanamo. And he was willing to take a political risk to get that done. Now, what is? let me stop right there. We always say a political A political risk means you're willing to do something where you spend political capital and people that are quote-unquote friends and family, are going to hate you at the end of it. But you think it's the right thing to do. And I respected uh, Lindsay in the end of the day because on that one deal that we worked out at uh, the conference table in the chief of staff's office, Carl Levin, he and I, over a lunch, had worked through the agreements to both achieve the president's goal of shutting down Guantanamo, Lindsay's goal of what cases were military trial versus civilian. That was the big issue then. And a set of protocols that can work through. And he was willing to take the risk to come out and work with Obama and stand there. And I think, uh, you know, I'm trying to separate both respect and the fact that we got along, which probably influenced the respect part, too. Uh, The other person I would say is Senator Susan Collins. Um, And probably uh, Bob Gates, uh, Secretary of Defense, those would be
2: uh, the three. Thank you so much. Sure. It's, uh, uh, any questions from the audience? Yeah. Do I call people or do you? Uh, so we got some ushers that, back there that will. Oh, just like sir. Okay.
1: Thank you for being here. Uh, sure. I was actually at your 2011 inauguration and remember how great uh, Chicago felt to live in at that moment. Feels like. Come on a- back. <laughs> <laughs> It feels like the political moment now is a little different, and you address this on a macro level, but I'm curious, having faced your own populist challenge in 2015, what strategies you think work for candidates or for even people who feel like they're fighting against a wave of populism?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, because I want to take more questions, I don't want to argue out what populism means, because that would be the def- definitional point here. I will say, uh, well, let me say, I'll give you... So Clinton, in between, I was telling President Clinton, I was up for re-election in 2015. And I told President Clinton in 2014, I said, I'm just telling you right now, this is a funky moment. I said, I've never seen anything like this. Now, let me say, I have a picture in my office of the first meeting on the first day at 9 a.m. with President Obama. And you know because the fire's in the background. It's winter, it's January 20th. If I told him in the moments, in the darkest moments of the recession, auto industry about to collapse, financial sector, all frozen up, You're going to have unemployment from 10-some-odd percent down to 4.9%. Health care will basically be universal. Energy costs and interest rates will be probably at the lowest levels in decades. Will people be content or really honked off? They would have gone with content, you know? And they're honked off. Like, really honked off. Uh, and it doesn't, and 4.9%, 4.8% polling Now, I understand, and I would argue, two points. There are two things that are really driving this, and I don't see them out being discussed. or in, They're not part of what I think is the, what, quote, unquote, is driving the populism. Two things I would say to you. One, people are more upset at the politics than they are at the economics right now. Everybody's talking about the economics. People are really frustrated with the politics and the dysfunction. Not just here, think, look at France. Look at what's going on. The second, what's driving that? I also believe people have made uh, huge compromises about their position today. And what I mean by that is, over the last 20 years, their spouses went to work. Your mother-in-law has moved in. The kids graduate college, they're coming home. They have kind of made all those compromises, adjustments to be, kind of hold it all together. What is really driving people's angst is their kids. They think that even if they send them to college, that's not a guarantee anymore. And they have to go to the poorhouse just to get them there. And they don't see the political system addressing the future better. They know the future is going to be rough for their kids. And what they're worried about is the dysfunction in the system is not getting its stuff together to make that future better rather than worse. And I think that's where the populism, that's where the anger, that's where the frustration is. It's not about this class or... And I'm not saying that the last 20 10 years, this kind of staticness around middle-class incomes and the loss pre-recession versus post-recession, but I actually believe the biggest angst that's driving people is around a a dysfunction in the political system Driven mainly by their fear about tomorrow will not be better than today. And that's the first time that's ever happened in America. And that's my kind of take on it. Right, does that help? Okay. Come back to Chicago. <laughs> it's raining here too often. <laughs> you got to pick on people. i am just looking. at uh,
2: Mayor Manuel, uh, thank you for coming here. My name is George. I'm a second-year MBA student from St. Louis, Missouri. And I'm interested in understanding uh, what are some specific policy areas that you're you're excited to work with a uh, new administration on?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, here is actually, I'll just uh, get, reversing their policies on immigration, reversing their tax policy, no. uh, uh, Here's my basic uh, North Star. Uh, Cooperate where we can, confront where we must. That's my attitude. So I'm giving May- Thursday a pretty big, what I think is a big speech, about what we're doing on our uh, airport, our public transportation, our roads, our parks, our schools, our community colleges, and, uh, and our streetlights. Uh, it's the five-year anniversary of my first speech on infrastructure. We're the only city with an uh, infrastructure bank, etc. cetera. Um, I'm willing to cooperate, not only cooperate, do something on, on uh, infrastructure. I'm not sure if I understand what the tax credit idea is. That would be a place, but I won't compromise uh, uh, on principles about Chicago being a welcoming city and a place where you can dream for your children. I will never compromise on that. I will never, ever allow the city that gave my grandfather a chance to turn its back on kids whose only reason they're here is because their parents thought that America could offer them something that their place of origin was not. You know, Amy and I, a week ago, had six dreamers at our house for dinner. Kid was from India, there was a kid from Nigeria and four kids from Mexico. Every one of them are there, and they're first in their family to go to college or thinking about going to college. That is the power of this country. That is the power of this city. And I'll never compromise on that because it's not worth being in public service giving up on that, it's just not. But I will be, you want to invest in a new era, helping us build our public transportation, great. I'll always take your money. <laughs> uh, uh, so that, those are the type of things. That's, you know, uh, where I'm willing to do it. And I'll be clear about that. I'm willing to. I'm trying to, I should be quicker for on the one answer. I've oh, got like 20 answers. Go ahead. You pick. you got like five hands, not me. Or six right there.
1: Thank you, Mary Emanuel. Yeah. Uh, Matt, MBA two from outside Chicago. What, is,
0: what does 2 mean? Your second year. Uh, second year. year. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh,
1: from outside Chicago. Okay. What's uh, that? I'm from outside Chicago. Where? Question is, uh, what? What are your, I guess. What are you currently doing to address crime and, in particular, violent sure. crime in Chicago? I know it's very complicated, but curious to get some insight beyond the headlines.
0: Sure. Well, first of all, let me. Uh, there's a couple things. And thanks, Matt. Matt, too. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, A number of things um, that we're doing. um, And then also understanding of the issue, okay? So we have 77 neighborhoods in Chicago. Last year, 37 of the 77 experienced a decline in shootings and homicides. And and in January, still experiencing it. Two neighborhoods or areas, Englewood, which is on the south side, in the 7th, And the Harrison, which is on the Austin area on the west side, uh, and Garfield, are driving almost 50% of the challenges. So I laid out uh, at Malcolm X Community College back in September a four-point plan. plan. One was to hire another 900-plus officers, and that included lieutenants, captains, sergeants, leadership, so you had a more intimate relationship between leadership and rank-and-file, and Um, and uh, uh, and more intense training around real-life experiences they're going to see in the streets. Two, uh, and this gets to a life commitment. So first of all, I've dramatically in my first term and second term expanded our after-school and summer jobs. So we went from 14,000 kids in our summer jobs to 31,000 kids. Uh, I believe in that as a positive act. And if you get the job, so there's 64,000 kids that apply for those 31,000, you have to pledge to go to college. You don't get the job unless you pledge you're going to go to college. Um, We now started uh, for 7,200 young men, 8th, ninth, and 10th grade, in our 20 most challenging neighborhoods, universal mentoring. Four hours a day, Monday through Friday. In school, there's a program called BAM, Become a Man. I just had Theo Epstein from uh, the Chicago uh, Cubs come to a circle. When President uh, Obama introduced my brother's keeper, the young man, Christian, who introduced him was a kid that I, I advocated the presidency at in 2012 at High Park High School. And he participated for like an hour and a half in this BAM circle. It's a circle, and the kids really learn how to. Uh, they learn what your father would teach you. And they get that kind of guidance and of knowing right from wrong, how not to give up on themselves, how to stu- study. There's a whole host of things that they do. The third thing is, uh, unlike New York or other cities, or California, we have a one-year minimum for gun crimes. In New York, they have a three-year minimum. And repeat offenders barely ever serve a sentence. They know it's a joke. So I'm for... Stiffening sentences for gun crimes. Reducing them for minor narcotics, but you take somebody's life, I got no, I'm not, I'm Old Testament, okay? I am, regardless of what my rabbi says. (laughs) I am, my view is we went crazy on narcotics, but on gun crimes, uh uh-uh. And then fourth and finally, invest in the neighborhoods. There is despair. A lot of, it's also true, you know, I don't know, San Jose last year experienced a 60% increase in homicides. Right here, next door to you, okay? Not the numbers we have, but they saw a big increase. You know, San Diego was up 81% last year. So something else is happening and that's a longer conversation. So more police, more mentoring, certainty around sentencing for gun crimes, repeat offenders, and investing in neighborhoods' economic opportunity. So you replace despair with hope. Now, I believe that's a big piece of just, now let me give you some contrary. Chicago had the biggest drop of deep poverty of any big city in the United States. Deep poverty, which is 12,000 or less. Now, I believe poverty plays a big role. If you don't think you have hope, You don't have a high school degree, you're going to do something really stupid. The reason I'm driving towards high school degrees, biggest factor to determine whether somebody does something stupid or not is their education or lack thereof. But it may not be the biggest factor that we think it is. It's a big contributor. We have an oversized population that is neither in school, in work, or has any of those two things in their background. And that's a driver. Okay. I also, in the midst of a major reform of our police department, I think we as a country made some mistakes in the past. And I've said this before. The reforms should not be done to cops. They should be done with cops. They are fighting crime and violent crime in a very serious way. You're asking them to fight crime and make serious changes simultaneously. They should be part of that process of making the change, not seen as the change is being done to them. And I think when you look at what's happened around the country, Indianapolis and Memphis have the highest homicide rate in their history. San Jose's up. San Diego's up. Austin, Texas, 70%. San Antonio, 49%. Louisville, 44%. Milwaukee, why? Why all of a sudden? And I think it was clear over the last two years, things were done as if the police, they have to make reforms. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it but they have to be brought to the table as a partner to help think of the solutions. Because if you do it to them, they're going to... So the four points to deal with it and is to deal with it from an economic standpoint, a moral standpoint, a criminal justice standpoint, and making sure your officers are doing community policing in the most intimate way and in building that trust. And it's we can do it, but it's going to take not one. And the other thing is, a lot of people want to look for the one thing. You're dealing with 30 to 40 years of things, both in the police department, in neighborhoods, in the criminal justice system. You're not, there is no one thing to this challenge. And you, know, you asked me the toughest things in the Clinton White House. I'll give you, I can handle anything in this job but one thing. I make a purpose to go visit usually it's a parent a mother but not limited or a grandma who has lost a child only if they want it I call them all if you want I'll come by but if you don't because of how you're feeling I get it and I always say I'm not here as a mayor I'm here as a father. Because I got three teenagers. I don't know how you're doing this. And I just, if you want to just have a hug, just want to talk about your son or your, your daughter. And that's the hardest part of this job. Figuring out a pension, what's right about school, how to recruit people like you to come to the city. That's not hard. You go in a home, and you're a parent, and maybe some of you are, but you'll get there, where the, thing, the most thing that you can do, which is to provide for your child, and you just didn't succeed, and all you have is somebody's shoulder, that's the hardest part of this job. Everything else is politics, and you can handle it. But the good news is we have a police department and a police superintendent leadership, and we have people in the city they want to make tomorrow better than today and they're committed to making the changes necessary and my job as mayor is to help lead that effort and bring everybody to the table to work through the solutions and that's why this is the greatest job uh, i've ever had in public life
2: yeah, thank you so much yeah. you've been listening to view
1: from the top the podcast a production of stanford graduate school of business based on the dean's speaker series This interview was conducted by Ben Coleman of the MBA class of 2017. Lily Sloan composed our music. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB. You can find more episodes of our show wherever you get your podcasts.